Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. In case you're just tuning in for the first time, you should know that uh, we typically spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones, uh, but we do not spoil anything from future week's episodes of Game of Thrones. That includes anything in the next time on preview that they show on HBO sometimes. You can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That's acastofkings at gmail.com. You can also find more of our episodes at Game of Thrones podcast.com. This week, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 5, Kissed by Fire. That's Season 3, Episode 5, Kiss by Fire, which will be spoiling everything through starting right now. Uh, actually, not right now, because we have a few announcements, Joanna Robinson. Uh, first of all, Joanna, there is somebody... You, you may have noticed, as you're browsing through our podcast in whatever uh, directory that you're browsing through it on, that uh, the podcast art has improved dramatically from something that I threw together in 30 seconds uh, like two years ago. Uh, some one of our enterprising listeners was so sickened by the <laughs> incompetence at which I put together that art that he decided to design us new art out of the goodness of his heart. Um, so, Jonah, who, who is this gentleman who, who did this? This is the lovely Cody Vandenberg, who just did this um, unsolicited and wholly appreciated. And we thank him so much. I love the new art very much so thank you to cody and um i don't know cody if you do artwork for other people maybe you want to let us know where people can find you yeah but, so we can we can pimp you out there yeah that's uh, pretty sweet but uh yeah seriously thanks cody the new art looks totally badass and uh we really appreciate it uh also jenna robinson uh, you, there's there's also an announcement about spoilers in the emails at a cast of kings at gmail.com now uh, as we mentioned, we do not spoil every, anything that takes place in future episodes, and that includes especially things that you know from the books that uh, you know have not taken place yet on the show. Um, and so I am very fortunate that I have Joanna Robinson here to vet all the emails that come in at acastofkings at gmail.com because many of them contain spoilers. And uh, if, if, there's even, if you even want there to be a chance of your email to be read on the air, it cannot have spoilers. And I think there's like a, some misunderstanding about what spoilers are, right, Joanna? Yeah, which I understand. It's a pain I know very well. But yeah, just so you guys know, I think there are sometimes people send me emails and they go, I think this is safe to talk about or I think this is safe for Dave to read. And it's not. And that's okay because I'm there to vet it. But just so you know... Um, if there's even a hint or a whisper of something you've read in the books that hasn't happened or been covered on the show, like me, your lips should be sealed. I mean, I don't mind reading your emails at all. I love reading your emails. Yeah. You can send them to me, but they're not going to Dave and they're not going on air. So, yeah. that's so no, if you want a personal you know, uh, email connection to Joanna, feel free to just keep those emails coming. I know that's what you are really asking for, right, Joanna? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Keep, so, <laughs> keep the marriage proposals coming, guys. Yeah. So I think uh, that is going to be it for um, for announcements this week. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk through this week's episode, and then we are going to get to some emails. Uh, usually, I like to put in some clips from the episode of some of our favorite bits, but uh, I we won't have time for that this week because we are already releasing this episode quite late. Uh, we're do, recording this on Wednesday night right now, so hopefully by Thursday you guys will have it. 
Uh, but yeah, usually we, we like to record a little bit earlier. This week, uh, I had family visiting, so I couldn't record the podcast uh, earlier this week. So no clips this week, I think. But let's get to the episode, Joanna Robinson. So uh, the interesting things about this episode started right with the credits. Uh, there was a new place in the credits. Do you want to tell us what that was? Yeah, that was Yunkai is how I'm choosing to pronounce it. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced. And that's where Danny was. So basically we didn't see Astapor. We didn't see the the uh, harpy of Astapor and stuff like that. It looked similar, but it was actually Because there was a, a new... harpy-like object. Yeah, there was. There was. And actually, you know, knowing me and my inattention in the credit sequences, it was someone else who pointed it out to me. They're like, hey, there was a new place in the credits. And I was like, really? And I had to watch it twice. Nice. That's how bad I am at noticing that. But anyway, there it was. So noted. All that matters is this in the show notes, Joanna. There you go. Uh, I got it in there. So anyway, uh, then we had uh, a, a, the, the, it cut right to uh, the Brotherhood, right? The plot line that we left off with last episode right. when uh, the... Got, what was the gentleman's name that said he would fight the hound? Um, Beric Dondarrion. Beric Dondarrion is you're gonna fight me, dun dun da, at the end of last episode. And Dave's like, who gives a crap? Who is this guy? I don't care. Right, exactly. And then I cared immediately when he lit his sword on fire and started fighting the hound with it, because regardless of how poor the character development is for Beric Dondarrion. I mean that is just amazing, right? I mean you we don't you don't usually see. I realized when I was watching it that I have probably never or very rarely seen one dude fighting another dude with a flaming sword, probably because such a stunt is incredibly dangerous to sort of execute. I wonder how uh, much of that was CG. And how much of it was actual, you know, if there yeah. was any actual fire. I mean, but it, it was, whatever it was, it was very convincing. Like, I did not think, wow, that's fake looking, right? Yeah. Uh, which occasionally happens. Um, so, yeah. And it's the, like he brought a lightsaber to a sword fight, basically. Right, you know? right. Uh, <laughs> nice. And, uh, you know, th- there was this moment where Thoros prays to the Lord of Light. And I see here that you notice that Melisandre's theme plays during the uh, during that scene. So is, is it... Another way for the music in the show to make the connection between uh, different plots that are that feel like totally removed from each other. I only so. noticed it because you of you, Dave. Oh well, good. I'm glad I could contribute that to your your life. So uh, no, seriously, it it is interesting once you start paying attention to when the various themes start playing, yeah. and and that's Dave pointed that out to me. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, you you do get that tie, and and the thing is, it is an evil sounding theme. I should point that out, right? That whenever that theme plays, it feels like something nefarious is going on, despite the fact that Thoros feels to me like a nice guy. You know, he feels like he's one of those happy-go-lucky Robin Hood-esque figures. Um, But when he's praying to the Lord of Light, it it all changes. So anyway, this spectacular fight scene takes place. Just amazing stuff. Game of Thrones at its best. Absolutely. Uh, And then this holy crap moment... When Beric Dondarrion is apparently killed by a sword through the shoulder. Uh, and I got to say, Joanna, I did not see that coming because uh, you had said, oh, Dave, I'm sure they're going to give you more characterization of Beric Dondarrion in the next episode. So when he was killed, I was like, <laughs> wow, I guess you were wrong about that, Joanna. But then double reversal, uh, he ends up living. Uh, and, and I think this is probably the second or no, no, the third time that we've definitively seen the Lord of Light uh, intervene 
in a really concrete way in, in the real world of Westeros. Uh, the first two times being Melisandre not dying from the poison and the second time being the smoke baby. Right. Um, so but- if you want, if you were going to like put your chips on one of the gods, it might be... <laughs> <laughs> you might want to push all in on the Lord of Light here at this point. So, yeah, it is interesting that he is the only god who has like definitively been displayed to have powers in the show. It may be in the book that the other gods do have powers, but in the show, the Lord of Light is the one that, that can deliver the goods. He's so, showy. He's a little flashy. Yeah. So, um, what yeah, did you think? So, I mean, were you excited when Beric Dondarrion rose from the dead? Were you like, oh, shit. Uh, yeah, cause, 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 um, there's that amazing scene when, is it Thoros that rushes to Beric's side when he yeah. dies? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, please, you know, Lord of Light, like, heal this person. And honestly, Joanna, I got, um, I hate, I hate to get, get all serious on you right now, but I did kind of get, uh, not, not necessarily a flashback, but, uh, a kind of, I've seen that scene before, like, actually play out for real, like, in my real life in, like, hospital beds. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, where people are, like, praying to God to heal someone. Right. Uh, and, you know, based on whatever you believe, like, that may or may not be futile. But it did strike me as, like, a really true world, true to life type of event. Uh, but unlike in the real world... <laughs> This guy came back from the dead. Uh, so I would have been pretty like, – like we've been talking about magic and deus ex machinas and, and so on. And I would have been more upset about it except for two things. Number one, um, the, the fact that the Lord of Light has actual powers has already been established in the show. So it didn't mm-hmm. like come out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Like he can actually prevent people from dying or and, and then the next step is he can bring people back to life. And then there was that quite brilliant expository scene, I thought, where right. uh, he po- points out all the times that he's been revived. And this is, again, Game of Thrones at its best, where they are giving you exposition while teaching you about the characters and also about the world. Like, it's like killing three birds with one stone. And it's really hard because they often have a lot of, like, really chunky exposition that they have to get through, you know? And so, you know, that's when you see, you know, the naked people or, or in this case, sometimes bath scenes and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was beautiful. I loved that scene, the fireside with Arya. I thought that was so beautifully done. And um, huge props to Maisie Williams and her and her like heartbreak over her father. I mean, it was just, I don't know. I thought that scene was really, really touching. Well, there was also, there was also a callback to previous uh, seasons when Arya was kind of recoiled in a fetal position by the fire. I think this was at Hall, right? Repeating the names of the people that she wanted to kill or get revenge on. Yeah, it's her little list of names that she recites to herself before she goes to bed. Right. Do you recall the names at this point, by the way? I know the Hound is on there. Cersei, Sir Illyn Payne, Polliver. Um, who are who are Illyn Payne and Polliver? Can you remind me, please? Sir Illyn Payne is the executor who took off her father's head. Uh-huh. And Polliver is one of the torturers at Hall. I see. Um, I see. And the Hound is on the list as well. And, and right. so, as is Joffrey. Right. I think that's the full list, right? 
Uh, no, there might be more. There and in the book, more. there's way more. And, right. and so, you know, yeah. Gotcha. But it's her little prayer that she says to herself right. at night. And her little death prayer, you know. It, it was also cool to me that the Lord of Light people actually let the hound go. They, they actually acknowledge that, okay, you know, the hound won this fair and square. There's kind of this deference. Honor among to, thieves. Yeah, for, uh, yeah, so to speak. And there's uh, this deference given to uh, the God that they believe in. And why wouldn't you in that situation? Why, why wouldn't you respect God's wishes when he freaking brings you back from the dead in that situation? So, <laughs> I also um, liked, um, you know, this is this was a firefight. And we've been reminded a couple times about how the hound feels about fire. Right. And I thought they just did a really good job of showing... You know, even even through all the fight choreography, you could just see how terrified the hound was. Right, right. So, yeah. So just a great opening sequence and a lot of reversals. And they use magic, but not in a way that I felt was, you know, not well set up. And they actually tried to explain some of the rules that, you know, you do lose something every time you come back. You know, so um, I'm cool with it, man. I really enjoyed this scene. So... Great, great opening to this episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, and then we have uh, we, we go to where Jon Snow is. Uh, mm-hmm. we, didn't, we haven't seen Jon Snow in a while. Uh, so they are about to try and break into the wall. And I, they talk about uh, how there's many towers and some of them are manned and some of them are unmanned, right? Right. Can you speak to this a little bit, Joanna, in terms of like why they have many as sort of to ward off wildlings and, and uh, white walkers or whatever, um, but they, they don't have enough men to keep them all manned. Is that the situation? Right. Well, it's, it's a strategy thing, and, and I forget how many castles are on the wall. They're called, they're called castles, and, um, but only three are manned. And I think he said 12, but I could, have been, I could be wrong. But, um, you know, it's, it's um, I don't know, basically what? They have cardboard cutouts in front of the windows of the other castles and are trying to fool people into think it's fully manned. But yeah, only three of them are manned. And John, John is really conflicted here. And this is something you see a lot in the book where he's like, how much information do I give up? Like, right. I, I was instructed to go all in, to go all into this like subterfuge of being a traitor. But I'm, you know, like... Do I really need to give out this information? And then he does. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record. I still think that whole situation was poorly set up, and so like that that there's any hesitation, which there was, would kind of betray the fact that he's not really fully on the side of the uh, of the wildlings. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right, and uh, you know, I want to speak to that actually because this is the point. In the book, you know, I don't know if you want to describe the rest of what happens to John um, in all its gory detail. Go, 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 go ahead. What you're, you, you can do it, Joanna. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Um, I, I want to say, and I think it's important, that in the book, um, Mance Raider is basically, you know, Mance is gone at this point. But in the book, Mance Raider is really questioning John's loyalty. Right. And he's like, I don't believe that you're on our side. And then Egret. Uh, sort of sticks up for him and she's like no he is he is completely on our side we have been having sex all of the time we are having sex all the time and which they aren't at that point but that's her like defense of you know john is on our side he is my bone buddy or whatever and then not really um, sure how that is indicative that he's on their side 
Well, it's a it's a breaking of a major vow for the Night's Watch. You know, oh, like, a, yeah. like an honorable Night's Watchman wouldn't do that. Anyway, I guess. the point is, then then they walk away, and John's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you told him that. We're not actually boning." And she's like, "It's fine as long as we start boning immediately." And then they do. And then they bone for a while, and then that scene in the cave happens. So it's less about um, him being seduced. I mean, sort of. Um, obviously, it's partially about him being seduced, but it's also about him doing what he needs to do to be believed. And and basically, they all sleep together. They all like sleep in a dog pile, like wildlings around a fire. So they all like they're having sex in front of all these people, basically. So that's how he's proving that he is a turncloak. And so the whole cave scene, though it was enjoyable. And, it, and it's actually in the book. It happens much later after they've been together for a long time. And so when she says at the end of that cave scene, I never want to leave this cave. I want to stay here forever. It makes more sense because they've been in this relationship for a good long while. Whereas here you're like, oh, ease up, Egret. You've had sex once. Like what's going on? Anyway. Uh, you know, that's interesting that you say that because for me it actually uh, it actually worked in the sense that I, I didn't think to myself, oh, well – Wow, that connection happened really quickly because there is so much palpable sexual tension between those two characters uh, that's been building and building and building and I can't. building <laughs> I can't. and building for the last you know five episodes, right? right. Or longer than that, like what uh, season two episode. I want to say seven. Yeah, I'm just randomly throwing that out there. I have no idea. You know what I mean? Like it's been there for a while. Right. right. Uh, and so when they finally uh, consummate their relationship, it feels just like, you know, I, I almost felt as much release as John did. I put that wow. out there. Wow. So, you know. Okay. Well, yeah. what I will say is that the Lord's kiss is what she calls what he does. That is directly from the book. Um, and um, I just thought that the whole, like, I don't ever want to leave this cave just seemed really like them having sex fine whatever that's great and i agree there is sexual tension those two are a couple in real life i believe the actors so um that must be fun to do on screen with your girlfriend but uh, i don't know i just just the whole romantic aspect of it seemed rushed to me all right that's fair enough that's fair enough uh you know it's interesting uh, the the, the <laughs> I, I was almost going to make a remark about how uh, the, this naked woman in this cave embracing this heavily clothed male uh, before they're about to have sex was kind of almost a, like epitomized the show in some way. It was like some allegory for the show. But in fact, I was totally proven wrong because I think there was actually more male nudity in this episode than female nudity for that's probably like a Game of Thrones record. Right? Uh, yeah, I think it was three to two. Yeah. Um, Brandon uh, from Santa Monica, California writes in, um, Game of Thrones has released, uh, has received, <laughs> sorry, released, Game of Thrones but... has received a lot of flack from certain circles for its nudity and the random moments the show likes to insert boobies in ways that don't necessarily move the plot forward. Sometimes I think they may have a point, but for the most part, I simply don't care because boobies are divine. This week, however, featured three pivotal scenes in which nudity was used by different characters as a means of inserting, uh, asserting themselves, getting what they want, and revealing the truth. Additionally, 
All three scenes represent very critical moments for the plot and character development. The three scenes I'm referring to are Egret's decloaking to virgin jo- uh, boy Jon Snow, Littlefinger's use of the gay male squire with Sir Loras, and Brienne and Jamie's naked bathtub moment. I could write a, fa- a five-paragraph essay on this, but I was rather hoping to hear you two break this down instead, uh, as I feel this episode was a rather important counter to the criticism leveled at this show. Joanna. <laughs> Thank you. Keep up the great work. And uh, I got to say, Joanna, I think Brandon's got a point. In, no, I like, disagree. Oh, really? Okay. I think Brandon has a point about this episode. And do you know why? Tell because me why. two of those three scenes where there's nudity, two of them are directly from the book. And the way that, the way that I have always taken issue with the nudity in the show is when it's added from the book. And then I ask, like to ask the question, Why? Like, okay, this nu- there is plenty of nudity in the book. So this nudity was added. Why? And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And that's how I feel about it. Okay, but can we acknowledge that this episode actually used nudity well? Absolutely. Yeah. So we can agree on that at least. Absolutely. And, I mean, we'll get to the Jamie and Brand stuff, but that is like page for page from the book and my favorite part. So we can, we can get to that later. <laughs> So uh, we get some more action with uh, with Jamie and Brienne this week, and uh, the plotline last week was so brutal, and it really doesn't let up. J- Jamie's continual suffering does not end in this episode because they actually like show a close up of the stump and uh, and the stuff that they're doing. Um, so there's a scene when they first arrive, uh, and Locke presents them to Roose Bolton, right. Um, and Roose Bolton, who is a man of dignity, right, is right. not happy. Treats, treats them with much more chivalry than they've been treated with so far. Right. Um, and But he does, like, he was fucking with Jamie a little bit, right, when he very slowly revealed that his sister was okay. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't know how to say this, <laughs> but, but your sister <laughs> is, you know, it was it was pretty funny. Yeah. Fine. She's fine. She's I, I think, though, Jamie would prefer him messing, Roose Bolton messing with him any day to getting his hand cut off and drinking horse piss. That's just. I, I guess. I'm putting that out there as a, a postulate that uh, may not ever be proven. So. Okay. Uh, so then they have this interesting uh, moment in the. So uh, the, Jamie gets his arm cauterized, I guess, right? To, to prevent the wound from uh, spreading, and the yeah, f- and he snips away some of the some of the rotted flesh, I guess. Right, and he didn't want milk of the poppy. Right. Uh, what was the reason for that again? He just didn't. He he. It's like a sign he's of weakness. A badass. Right. Uh, yes. Was that scene in the book? The, the whole situation with him in the hand and everything. Like what? Kyburn. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Sorry about that. I'm well, not 100% well, sure. Well, the fact that you know his name, I think, is is an indication that it was in the book because... Well, Kyburn, yeah, and we met him in the in the premiere. Um, do you remember when they went to Heron Hall and there was, like, one survivor? Do you remember when John, when uh, yeah, Rob... Yeah, th- that was the dude? Yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was just, you know... And it was pretty sick right yeah that's kind of what um i i don't i don't have any complaints about it but you know the observation does stand that it was really gross 
Yeah. And my, my mind immediately leaps to, did they really have to show that? But uh, that's kind of something that I'm just like, okay, you want to show the brutality of this world. That's, that's cool with me. Well, you know, and people talk a lot about the, the nudity in Game of Thrones revealing people's vulnerabilities. And I think there is a degree in which the, the violence, not all of the violence, but some of the violence definitely helps uh, show that. And I think this was really good. We saw Jamie in such anguish. And then when that was followed later by him just being completely open and broken, it was a really good juxtaposition, I thought. So I think it was necessary to make the later scene that much more powerful. So let's talk about that later scene. They are in the bath, and uh, <laughs> and Jamie kind of insists on taking the the pool that Brienne is also in, but Brienne's like, "No, get away." Um, kind of interested at what I mean. What did you make of that reaction that that Brienne had? Like she just, you know what I mean? It's obvious that these two have a very deep connection and respect for each other uh, and probably even like a sexual attraction for each other. Uh, But like it feels like outwardly Brienne still needs to like maintain appearances. Well, I mean, they're not friends. You know what I mean? I think they're wary allies. And I mean, Jamie much more. I think Jamie is much more reliant on Brienne than Brienne is on him at this point. And, um, you know, I think she still doesn't trust him. I mean, I think this scene went a long way towards that. I think her feelings about him changed a lot over this scene. Right. I mean, the dude has done a lot of terrible things. And so right. th- that will n- that will always be like a lens through which Brienne views him, I feel. Right. Um, and so in this, in this scene, he describes the why he was the kingslayer right and why he why he killed the mad king right right? and i think we've heard bits and pieces of this before right we've heard bits and pieces of why like what happened with the mad king the mad king was essentially doing all these terrible things and ordering the deaths the senseless deaths of you know thousands of people Mm -hmm. and that that's why jamie had to act Mm -hmm. but it, it, it has never been portrayed as a heroic act well, yeah, because he just – he betrayed his oath. I mean right. he broke a very – I don't know. He broke a very strong oath. So I can understand – I don't know. He, well, and the other thing is I feel like in this scene, Jamie said that he never fully explained himself to anyone, that he was judged and like maybe he probably told Cersei or whatever, but he was judged and he was almost too proud to explain why he did what he did. Right. You know? So. You know, this reminds me of this movie I was listening to on the radio today called The Kill Team. Have you heard about it? No. It's playing at Tribeca this week, and it's about, uh, it's a documentary about these soldiers that uh, went around executing Afghanistan civilians uh, and, like, placing guns at the scenes of, scene of the crime to, uh, to frame them. For it, like uh, not to frame them, but to to make it seem like it was done in self defense. So they killed right. like three people and like covered up the crimes, like uh, Afghanistan civilians, and, and then they were eventually court martialed. But there's this whole thing about like the uh, army cohesion is so high that uh, it was very difficult for any whistleblowers to step out, right, and and to, sh- to put a stop to this, right, uh, and. 
it, it just seems like in any military organization, which the King's Guard essentially is a military organization for for Westeros, that like the the um, ability and will for people to speak out against terrible atrocities is uh, is always difficult. You know, um, yeah, they're describing it as moral injury. Like it's not PTSD. It's that you you do something. Um, that acts against your moral code. Uh, and so that's what Jamie was being asked to do, and he essentially couldn't do it. He instead ended up killing the king. And what's interesting is this echoes an episode in the first season. Um, Robert Baratheon, um, before he died, well, not just before he died, but he's taunting Jamie. And he says, he says, what about Aerys Targaryen? What did the Mad King say when you stabbed him in the back? I never asked. Did he call you a traitor? Did he plead for a reprieve? He's, you know, he's mocking Jamie. And then Jamie says, he said the same thing he had been saying for hours, burn them all. And then he says this to Robert and to Barris and Selmy. And basically they sort of gape at him like they had never heard it, you know? And so he says that and he just sort of leaves. And that's exactly what he says here. But it, it's like telling Brienne, this is, it feels like this is the first time he's ever told this story, you know? Yeah. And it, it's really interesting how he kept bringing it back to like, what if Renly asked you to do this? What if Renly had been doing this? What would you have done? You know? And I thought Gwendolyn Christie, who plays Brienne, I thought her reaction shots were fantastic. And also this scene reminded me a lot of that scene we talked about last year um, with Jamie in the cell. Um, that that long two shot where he was talking about serving as a squire and what it means to honor and to serve as a squire and stuff like that. And then he ends up killing his cousin. And um, I was just talking about that with someone today about how how much they um, they feel like that is character assassination of Jamie Lannister because he doesn't do that in the book. Ah, interesting. And so, and it, it's such a vicious thing. And yeah, yeah, he pushed that kid well, out. Well, there's the definitely so a character saying. assassinated. If you <laughs> no, know what like, I'm saying, he okay. was already sort of on the road to redemption. That was bad. And then no, it was good. And then he <laughs> killed someone. And so it's like he's starting from there, as opposed to the last terrible thing he did was push that kid out of a window, and he felt really bad about it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. I don't know what. So, what did you think of this scene with Jamie and Brienne? Uh, yeah, it was it was very good. I mean, uh, something. Uh, let me point out something I thought was good about it, and something I thought wasn't good. Okay. Uh, what I really liked about it is the way they set up, the, like the way they kept cutting back and forth between the characters was really effective because at that point in the story, Brienne is like totally spick and span. You know, yeah. she is totally clean, and Jamie still has a bunch of crap all over him. Yes. And I kept waiting for him to just wash himself off because he looks so uncomfortable with all that stuff on him um but it also you know dare i suggest that it mirrors the psychological state of the characters uh (gasps) that you know you have one person who is pure in heart and soul and one person who is burdened by the dirt and grime of this world and is trying to unburden himself Mm-hmm. Uh, so, trying to come clean, man. So yeah, so he's trying to come clean, and so the the sort of visual was very effective. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I have to think it was it was intentional. Um, but what I did not like is the situation you have whenever you have an actor who loses an appendage, and um, you know is forced to 
It, it still obviously doesn't lose the appendage in real life, but like has to pretend like he has lost it in the show. So he has it, to like ball up his hand into a fist. Yeah, and wrap, it, it just, wrap a bandage around it. it like, may, okay, maybe it was. Maybe they did use CGI, and I just didn't notice it. But it just never looks right. Like, uh, you know, one example I can think of is Buster in um, in Arrested Development. Arrested Development, yeah. Which spoiler? He loses his hand in that show. And he uses a fake hand, but you can always tell that the fake hand is, like, longer than his other hand because it's really just, you know, a a prosthetic on top of his existing hand. Uh, I kind of got a tingle of that when I was watching the scene. It just felt like he had this thing on his actual hand. And it looked a little bit, I want to say, silly juxtaposed with this very serious situation where he's describing killing someone well i have um, to say and, I, and i've heard that from other people where they wished that his stump had not been in frame the way it was um but i don't know on the one hand i think you could make an argument for needing to frame that vulnerability right there that wound and the other thing is i kind of liked it on a really really realistic level of haven't you ever had your arm in a cast and you try to take a shower and you have to keep it dry? And it's this like really <laughs> annoying fact of having a cast on your arm. That's all I was I was thinking about that. I was like, God, his arm's gonna drop because he's so tired, but he can't get the wound wet. Like that's all I was thinking. So well not all I was thinking, but that's what that looked like to me. But I hear you. I hear your point. And absolutely with, with deformities it's 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 always a struggle. So Alrighty, uh, so I think we should take some time out of this episode, Joanna, to thank the people that made it possible. Let's. Uh, so the Game of Thrones podcast, The Cast of Kings, is only possible because uh, of the generous backing of a lot of people on Kickstarter. And so this week, uh, we want to mention a, uh, a new Kindle book called... The Lazy Geek Diet, written by John Bench. That's The Lazy Geek Diet. Uh, There is a Kindle edition available right now for 99 cents. You guys, that's amazing. That is, I mean, how could you, you'd be stupid not to buy the book. You'd be the laziest geek. Yes. Not to just like hit buy and, and procure it. The author of this book is uh, from Belfast, which is where uh, Game of Thrones is mainly filmed. Uh, And it is essentially, according to the author's own description, a chance to make some funny quips and rant about geek things he loves under the guise of dietary advice. In this book, Joanna, you will learn how to ridicule dumb chickens, bask in a mother's love, walk... Sell your precious fluids to the highest bidder. Moisturize. Look cool with Bluetooth earpieces. Parody a 2003 interview with Gary Taubes. Pretend to hate famous people that you secretly like for shock value and commercial gain. And get fit and lose weight. So, I mean, I don't know how you can turn that off or down, Joanna Robinson. It's got it all. It's got it all. Let me read you the opening paragraph uh, from this book. Finally! The overweight, underachieving layman rises and throws his two bits into the ring as he squeezes the oil pus out of his fat cells with a rolling pin. 
Come with me, dear reader, on a magical mystery tour of my uh, my fat-squeezing Fabricaria de Quay and learn how we select the finest spruce to make the surgical-grade pins. That's from John Bench's The Lazy Geek Diet, available right now on Kindle for 99 cents. Thank you, John, for your support of A Cast of Kings. Dave, I I think you forgot the number one reason why people might want to read this book. That is correct. Uh, In the book, John Bench makes many disparaging remarks about yours truly, Dave Chen, at least if this excerpt that he sent me is to be believed. So I know a lot of you out there enjoy making disparaging remarks about me. Perhaps you will find some kinship within The Lazy Geek Diet by John Bench, available right now. For one dollar, on uh, on your Kindle. So, thank you, John. Uh, let's move on, John Robinson. There's also a lot of people who made uh, sort of uh, smaller, non-sponsorship size donations, but nonetheless, still very important donations. Very, very valuable to us. So, uh, why don't I read off some of their names? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, so, a big thanks to the following people: Jessica Pippin. Our beloved King Joffrey. I don't even know that's what they asked us to read. Uh, Steve Worsley Dragonborn, Geek Girl Diva, Drew Clark, Richard Fulcher, Paul McCormick, Heather, Steve Dennis, Josh Johnson from Greenville, South Carolina, and Jeff Gerspock. Who else, Joanna, is on our list of uh, donors for this week's episode? Um, I would like to thank um, Naresh Jagannath. And Ross Nordine, Corey Morris, Lee Vincent, Eva Chung, Tyler Schneider, Connell Logan, Callie Rhodes, mm, Danish Syed, Chris Visser, and the lovely Dave Gonzalez. Thank you guys so much. Joan, I thought that was pretty good. I, I, I you, took it slow. You butchered surprisingly few of those. Like, it's the you, best I've done so far, I think. I agree. Well, thank you guys so much uh, thank you for guys your donations. Thank you a lot. We really appreciate it. And uh, it really helps keep us going when we're recording podcasts at, at 10.30 p.m. at night. Um, you know, so thank you guys. It's, it's We super really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So, uh, let's get to the rest of this episode. What else occurred? Oh, hey, dude, we totally forgot to mention that in the uh, Brotherhood plotline, Gendry decides he's sticking with the Brotherhood. Yeah, so sad. So, theoretically, Arya is going to be transported back to uh, Riverrun, if I'm not mistaken. Theoretically, I, I I just have this bad feeling, Joanna... That it is not going to go according to plan. But that is... Maybe I'm totally wrong and Arya and Kat will be reunited next episode. Uh, but I don't know. Nothing is ever easy in the Game of Thrones. And Arya's dire wolf will come back. And Sansa's dire wolf will come back from the dead. And I mean, everyone will be, and, know, and Ned's ghost. I just, I just have this really bad feeling about it. So I don't think it's going to happen. But we'll the, see what happens. Go the ahead. thing I wanted to say about that scene, and I've already talked about it a couple places, but I've been seeing a lot of confusion about what... Gendry says to her. Yes, when um, he says, uh, "You, you are not my. You wouldn't be my family. You would be my lady." Right, and I think a lot of people are hearing that as like, "Ooh, my lady," or whatever. But what he says is, can "My you, lady." Can you do that? Can you do that voice again, Joanna? Ooh, my lady. Okay, actually, I was wrong. What don't I ever do was, it again. What I meant was, don't ever do it again. <laughs> Thanks. Um, 
that um, he actually said milady, and what he meant was, "You wouldn't be my family. You are obviously of noble birth, and I am not. So I would I would be subservient to you, and I would have to call you milady because you would be above me." Right. And so I think a lot of people. I mean, I love Arya and, and Gendry together, and as much as. Um, or it's Gendry, I guess. As much as their age difference is a little funky, like I don't mind the little love pangs that people are feeling about them, but I, I don't think that's at all what he was trying to communicate in that scene. So let's talk about yeah, and and for the record, I I kind of uh, I, I was able to get that from the context. So a lot uh, of people have been confused. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. Well, because uh, I think uh, in, I believe, season two, episode like two or three, when she talks about how she doesn't want to be a lady, right? And she gives him crap when he he calls her. It's like a callback to that episode, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And there's also a scene in season two when Tywin Lannister tells um, Arya when when she's trying to pretend like she's, she's passing for Lowborn. Right. Um, and he talks about how... Lowborn people say my lord and my lady and as opposed, to, as opposed to my lord, my lady. Right. Yeah. So it was a little, uh, you know, a little enunciation lesson. Yes. There you go. Uh, all right. Let's talk about the um, let's talk. There's oh, so many more plot lines to discuss here today. Uh, let's talk about the Karstark storyline with um, with Rob, with Rob. Right. And. Mm-hmm. What happened? So Karstark was hungry for vengeance and uh, and decided to kill the Lannister boys this episode. Right, right. Um, and it, it took me actually a second to figure out, to actually know like from the choreography what had actually happened. Like that he, uh, It wasn't clear to me whether he'd actually killed any Lannister men on his right. way into the dungeon. Because the fr- you see a sword go through someone's back and I believe that's one of the Lannister kids, right? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's yeah, it was one of the kids that got skewered. Yeah, and then so then so then both of them are killed. Right. Um and so Rob is furious and uh he sentences all five of them to death. And right. despite the um uh urgings of Talisa and also Kat, I think that the, that they should keep Karstark alive, Rob his uncle, like everyone, his uncle, his mom, and his wife were all like, "Keep Karstark alive as a hostage." And, and you know, the whole—the only thing I could think of during that scene was, "Wait, what about the four dudes he was with?" <laughs> like he, that one was the guy. The guy was like begging for his life. Uh, I just felt bad for that guy. He the guy really, who was like, "I only want." I kind of liked that. That was a little sassy Judge Judy moment when the guy was like, "I was only watching," and Rob's like, "Okay, then you get to watch all your friends die, and then you die." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a bummer. I I, I felt for him, and and it, like I lo- I love how at no point in the proceedings was it even considered that they keep the other dudes alive. Right? It was just the one dude, just Karstark. Right. Um. And he kills him anyway. And I think uh, again, it's hard to know how bad of a strategic move it is, but it does feel to me like they're setting Rob up to be. Uh, despite having sort of military genius, they're also setting him up to be too controlled by his passions. Uh, because, I mean, that's the only reason he kills Karstark, not because it's strategically valuable, but because he's angry with him for kind I of disagree. violating. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Well, disagree. I think, okay. <laughs> I think what they were trying to show, and I don't agree with the way they showed it, because to my mind in the book, it's a much 
um, murkier conflict of damned if I do, damned if I don't. Like there was no good way out of that. And this they made it seem like what Rob did was a stupid thing and everyone around him was telling him not to do it. And but what I think they were okay, so to you, show. Okay, so you so then I am cor- like I'm correct in thinking what I think then because that's. Well, what wait, depicted. but not ruled by his passions. Okay. Ruled by honor, and I think what they were trying to show was Rob was making the stupid honorable decision, just like Ned did. I see. Like he was pulling a Ned Stark. This is what his father would do, and we see that that did not work out for his father. So I think they were trying to model him as like a mini Ned Stark in that scenario. Well, it is interesting because also the way that that scene is shot is um, somewhat similar to uh, the first episode of the entire series uh, when Ned executes the um, the deserter. You know right. I mean? Like the way that he stands over him and uh, I believe he's kind of dressed similarly. Do you know what I mean? Even though uh, it's rainy. In a hundred in thousand furs. So yeah. you can't tell what he looks like. Yeah. That's right. Even though this scene is in, in rain and the, the, the other scene was not really in rain. Um, but yeah, I, I could definitely see the parallel. Although uh, my sort of pushback on that is if, that's, if Rob is all about honor, then wouldn't his punishment – like shouldn't his mom still be in a, in a brig somewhere? Or not a brig, but you know um, – sorry, uh, like a dungeon somewhere, right? Like if he's truly honorable, he wouldn't let his mom out of out of jail just because she's his mom. No, what, but what would Ned do? Ned wouldn't keep Cat in jail. Uh, I so think it's, it's all about I what think, would Ned do then? Exactly. I think he's le- he's leading his life that way. What would my father do? All right. Well, then he gets this idea while he's making out with his wife. Well, what? Uh, oh, sorry. What? And the other thing oh, I want sorry, to say the ahead. other par- sorry the other parallel I think is to when Theon tried to um, execute Sir Roderick last season, and he did such a poor job of it. You, do you remember that? Like, the head did not come off the first whack, and he had to sort of whack at it a couple times? Yeah, that was rough. That was super rough. So at least Rob did this cleanly like his father would. So, you know. All right, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, the, those parallels did not immediately leap to mind. I'll just, sure. I'm just going to say that. And so did the show do a bad job of setting that up? I don't know. Um, but for me, they didn't leap to mind. For you, they might have because you have some context. Be curious to see if our listeners thought the same. All right, what else happened? So many, so many other things. We got like three more plot lines to cover here. <laughs> um, really, only two major locations left: so Dragons, Dragonstone, and um, King's Landing. King's right. Landing. So, so, so with Dragonstone, we have uh, the situation with Davos and Stannis, and um, and Stannis's wife, right? Is that right. Stannis's wife? That, that yeah. We see, we meet Stannis's wife for the first time. We know that she has been unable to deliver him an heir, but until this point, we did not know that she had been keeping the, uh, you know, fetuses in jars. You don't pickle your fetuses? No, I do Dave? not, John Robinson. Hmm. I do not. Um, hmm. wh- why? You know, Stannis is like an onion. The more layers you peel back. The more it stinks. Uh, it's just the more you learn about this character, the the less you want to learn about the character. And uh, yeah, that that was kind of a troubling scene. It it is interesting to see that his wife has like full quote unquote faith, right? That yeah. she is totally bought into this Lord of Light thing because that's one of the only ways you'd be okay with your husband having sex with a really hot priestess. Yeah, correct? she she drank all of Melisandre's Kool Aid. She is all in, so to speak. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know what that means. 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And, and we find out that, shockingly, Stannis has a daughter. Right. So, uh, I, I don't, I gotta say, like, obviously the daughter is disfigured or deformed in some way, but, um, wasn't really clear. The stigma against her wasn't 100% clear to me. Is it, is the idea that she has this kind of, uh, disfigurement and therefore is shunned by society? Is that what, is, is that, is it as basic as that or is there more that I'm not picking up on? She has what's called grayscale on on her face. And yeah, she's just, she's disfigured. And in some cases, it can be a mark of death of the plague. Right. Um, so yeah, she's sort of hidden away. I mean, she's not hidden away um, as much in the books. And she's actually in the second book, So as is his wife. And so it was sort of interesting that they waited until now. I wasn't sure whether or not they would even use them. You know, well, what's, um, I mean, one one thing that just from a makeup perspective, I mean, you've read about grayscale in the book. When you saw it, was it what you envisioned? Yeah, yeah. Let's the the uh, a wiki of ice and fire description of grayscale says it is a disease that can leave flesh stiff and dead and the skin cracked and flaking, mottled black and gray and stone like to the touch. Gotcha. I mean, I think that's pretty much what they did. Yeah, it, it it seemed a little bit um, uh, almost mild to me. I gotta say, like it did not. She, she yeah, did not she's look like, pretty cute, right? Pretty you know what I mean? She did not look like seriously. She did not look like seriously disfigured. Like someone, like you know, some kids might make fun of her, but she's you know, like it well, didn't yeah, seem like there was that much wrong with her. Let's put it that I, way. I kind of think it's like what they did with Tyrion's face. How right. they didn't cut his nose off. They just gave him a dashing scar. That's exactly and, right. That's exactly what I thought about when I saw that scene. Yeah, was, she's got the grayscale on her face, but truth be told, she's still pretty freaking cute. So, right. yeah. So then she and Davos obviously have a long-standing connection. Um, right. And they kind of uh, – Davos knows he's done wrong and they kind of have this this really sort of um, – this lovely scene together uh, down in the dungeon. What did you make of this scene, Joanna? So this is a conf- – like this is – not from the books. Shireen does not go down to see Davos and teach him how to read. But it's much better, honestly. And this is a way in which the show is better than the books, as it is sometimes. And they just cut a bunch of extraneous characters. So basically, Davos wanders around the dungeons, meeting a lot of people in the dungeons. And you don't really need to watch it on a TV show. And they have, like, the maester of Dragonstone teach him how to read. Because that is important for his character development. But, like... Here, having Shireen do it, I think it's just really neat storytelling. They just sort of tied up a bunch of things really neatly by having her do it. And it was pretty cute. So I liked it a lot. Yeah, it it was a nice scene. We also kind of saw Stannis actually kind of be a tender human being in this episode a little bit, right? Sort of. He, I mean, he was not as He didn't really hug her. Yeah, I know. But he wasn't like terribly cold to her as as one would expect. Right. right. You could tell that he was like – and it's sort of – I mean you say he's like an onion. The more you peel back the layers, the more it stinks. But like maybe they they upped Lady Selyse Baratheon's craziness a lot in the show. And she does not keep pickled fetuses in the book. So this was like a show creation, which is fine. It was horrific. But um, I think we're meant to understand why Stannis is so closed off the way he is. I mean partially because he's married to a crazy lady and his daughter is disfigured. Like this is part of his backstory that we're filling in. So, you know, because I think Stannis has been a really problematic character. He's not sympathetic at all. And 
I mean, right? Wouldn't you say he's yeah. not sympathetic at all? Sure. He's not like a he's not like a Joffrey, but he's just like inscrutable almost. And so it's like, how do I care about this character who's just so closed off? And so in, in giving you at least a glimpse into why he's closed off, I guess it sort of helps crack that character open a bit. All right. We also, uh, I think to wrap up, we can talk about what happened at King's Landing. Uh, there is a nice scene between Tyrion and Olena. Uh, Which we've been mispronouncing. I've been mispronouncing as Oleana, and I have no idea why. I blame David Mamet, but yeah, it's Lady Olena. And they talk about how they almost have no money to do the wedding, and uh, after Lady Olena uh, browbeats him, as you say here in the show notes, Joanna, uh, she offers... She, yeah, she calls him a browbeaten bookkeeper. Correct. I apologize. Yeah. No, that's um, okay. Uh, but I think she is also browbeating him. Yes, Absolutely. She's contributing to the browbeating when she does yes. this. And uh, yeah, so they, she offers to pay for, for half the wedding, thus serving as a, a capping off to one of the lesser, the not as interesting plot lines in the show, in my opinion. About, uh, right, but at least we got some Diana Rigg, which is always enjoyable, the way she was bossing Pod around and stuff like yes, that. Yes, she is amazing. And uh, they have this uh, scene in... Um, in the the kind of small council room where Tywin and Tyrion and Cersei uh, have it out. Uh, And it is... (laughs) What is amazing about the scene, Joanna, is the look on Cersei's face for 90% of the scene followed by the look on her face for the remaining 10%. Yeah. (laughs) She's just so smug. And she's like, I got got you, you know? Yeah. You are totally screwed. Um, so in order to circumvent the uh, Tyrrell's power play, they are going to try to marry Tyrion to Sansa. And uh, Cersei's like, ha-ha. Um, and Tyrion essentially is saying, like, like he's, he's upset because he thinks that, like, obviously his passions are with someone else, but also he feels like Sansa deserves better, right? Is yeah. that... Am yeah, I- he's a real stand-up guy in this scene. He's like, yeah. has the has she not suffered enough? Right. And honestly, from where I'm sitting, between Loras and I don't know, Baelish running off with her, like her and Joffrey, like Tyrion is pretty much her best option out of those. Yeah, you know, he's the least bad option in that right. situation. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then uh, Cersei is the one that's supposed to marry Sir Loras. Right. So. You know, not really sure what to make of that, but I did like, you know, how Tywin essentially said, you guys have been ruining the family name for long enough. And at that moment, I did have sympathy for his point of view. Did you? (laughs) Yeah, because these guys have been running around drinking and sleeping with prostitutes, or in the case of Cersei, uh, sleeping with her brother and her cousin and bearing a child out of incest, you know, and here's this dignified guy who has probably done a lot, has gone to war to build up his family's fortune, seeing his children kind of squander all his wealth and do all this stupid stuff. Um, I did sympathize with... Uh, so you're with Team Tywin is what you're I'm telling I'm Team Tywin for this episode only. Uh, I do have a feeling that... Cersei and Tyrion, both of whom are political geniuses, are not going to let these marriages go off without a hitch. So I just have a feeling that it's not going to happen according to plan. Um, 
And what else happened this episode? So we we also oh prior to this we forgot to mention that that uh, Lord Baelish enlisted the help of um, a gay squire, shall we say? Right. I think he was a prostitute. I think he's a gay prostitute from Baelish's. Um, I mean, he, acting as a squire. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. to, to sort of suss out the plot. Um, right. I did like that brief moment between uh, Cersei and Lord Baelish where she's like, are you actually going to do your job this time? Yeah. Right. A little bit better than when I told you to find Arya Stark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was pretty um, fun. Yeah, and we had – and then the other thing we need to talk about is Danny. Yeah. So there was a brief uh, bit of the Danny storyline. And what was interesting was they uh, – during the previously on Game of Thrones bit, they they showed a bit of Mormons. Uh, they, they showed like Ned. They showed Ned first of all identifying Mormon as uh, as an informant. So I thought there was going to be something interesting happening between Barris and Selmy and Mormon this this episode, right? W- regarding uh, Sir Barris and Selmy knowing that Mormon was an informant, right? Uh, and it kind of comes out, but not really, right? They have this scene of dialogue where he says, uh, dude, your reputation is pretty rough back in King's Landing. I don't think you're going to be able to rule the throne with Danny like you're hoping. And uh, Mormont is, uh, blows him off, essentially says that the concerns are overblown. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see if he's proven to be right or wrong. So do you have anything to add? Uh, just that we met one more new character in the leader of the Unsullied. Um, yeah, which was a, a great scene when they had yeah. that dialogue and he explains, like, it, uh, it just reminds me of, uh, you know, I, it calls back other scenes in, in movies that I've seen where they're like, the, you know, the, the day I had this, that day that this momentous event happened, I had this name, you know, and that, therefore I'm keeping that name. Right. I know I'm making no sense right now, but like I feel like I've seen that scene take place before, and it is typically inspiring. So, yeah, and I, you know, I love the sound of the Valyrian. The sound of that invented language is yeah. really beautiful to me, and I thought she did a great job with it. And then this new actor who we met for the first time, whose name I did not write down, but anyway, who plays Grey Worm, I thought he did the the, the language sounded beautiful coming out of his mouth. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely language and certainly far more uh, melodic than uh, than Dothraki as <laughs> yeah. a language. There are fewer glottal stops, I think, in the Valyrian than there were in the Dothraki. Did I read? Did I read the Barriss and Selmy Mormon scene correctly, Joanna? Like, was that was my assessment mostly correct in terms of what? Yeah, was you going know, on? I agree. I, I've heard some conflicting things, like because in this, I think it's in this episode that Barriss and Selmy says. Um, that he didn't sit on the small council. And right. so maybe the implication is because he didn't sit on the small council, he wouldn't know right. that Mormont was a was a traitor. Right. But then Selmy himself seemed to be dropping some hints that they that he did know. We're a bit off the map of the books here, so I can only right. speculate. So right. I have so, no insider information. So overall, Joanna Robinson, what do you think of this episode? I loved it. It's really hard to follow 
something so incredible as episode four. Yep. Um, but I, I actually think the quiet moments in this really sat will will stay with me longer than the big explosion of, of episode four. That Jamie and Brienne scene in the bath, I think, is going to go down as one of the classic Game of Thrones scenes. I thought it was fantastic and really well done. I completely agree. Yeah, I thought this was a solid episode. I really enjoyed watching it. Some great scenes in it. Um, very few complaints. You know, just just great episode. Uh, some of the stuff I'm really intrigued by, like the setup for some of the stuff, like what's going to happen with Sansa. Very curious. Uh, what's going to happen with Tyrion and Cersei and their marriages? Very curious. Um, is Jamie Lannister? Like the big question on my mind is like, is Jamie Lannister going to exact some form of revenge? And how do I feel about that? You know, how, how do I feel about that? Mm-hmm. It, it, it would make me very confused. Right, morally, because Jamie Lannister is terrible. He's terrible, right? But you also kind of root for him and want him to get his revenge. So I really, it would really confuse me if Jamie Lannister got some revenge on Locke, um, or revenge on anyone for that matter. So, do you have any predictions for next week? This might be fun for our listeners who've read the books. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very clear to me that a huge. Uh, enjoyment for the listeners uh, who have read the book is hearing me stumble my way through what's going on in the show and make predictions that end up not being true whatsoever. Uh, I'm curious what's going to happen with uh, Theon, right? Like what, mm-hmm. what what is going on with that plot line? Um, in terms of predictions, the, the problem with making predictions on Game of Thrones is that the way the time elapses is so varied from week to week, I feel like... Uh, do you know, like, anything could, could happen? Like, for example, uh, Jamie and Brienne arrived at Sir Bolton's, uh, you know, uh, under Sir Bolton's care this week. But that could, they could have easily been on the road for, like, another four episodes. Do you know what I mean? Right. But mm-hmm. In Game of Thrones time. So it's very difficult to predict, like, oh, this will happen. You know, Danny could be wandering through the desert for another six episodes. Like, I have no idea. Um... So I think I've already made my predictions, namely that Arya is probably not going to get back to her family and that Cersei and Tyrion are probably going to hatch some scheme to prevent these marriages that their father wants from occurring. So th- that's my, those are my only predictions. And they're very vague and probably easy. You know, Other people probably can easily make those predictions as well. But that's the only value add I'm providing right now, Joanna. No. So. <laughs> I was just curious. It's not, and I don't mean like, oh, it's hilarious when you're wrong. I'm just interested to see. Because some people are, but that's no, yeah. But I'm just interested (laughs) to see where show watchers are, you know, versus book readers. Right. So, all right, Joanna, let's read some emails. Let us read some emails. Uh, You can always email us at a cast of kings at gmail dot com. So this email comes in from Thomas from Australia. The title of this email is. Theon, I love to watch you fail. You suck at life, but in a good way. Uh, Thomas writes in, Hey guys, I've been compelled to write in uh, uh, by some of Dave's comments about Theon's storyline in the latest episode. I couldn't believe you were dissing it. It was perfect. Theon has become a gloriously tragic character, and my fiction-loving soul delights in seeing him encounter every misfortune possible. I thought it was fantastic the way he thought the dude from Misfits was rescuing him, only to be returned to the the torture chamber. I didn't see it coming, and the look on that misfit dude's face, he's utterly sick. It is brilliant. 
If you ask me, no time wasted. We're not just turning the same wheels like Danny season two plotline. We got to know more about Theon and the dude from Misfits, and also became more sympathetic to Theon's situation. He's just like Jamie, more lovable after every gruesome scene. I guess the big thing is, why do you care so much that the plot moves along through the action? Um, I think character is more important. If Theon sits in that dungeon all season, being tortured and playing mind games with the Misfit, I would be content. I think you were way too negative about a story I found wonderfully engaging. Dave, what's wrong with you? I only wrote that for dramatic tension. Love you, man. <laughs> so, uh, Jonah, do you have any thoughts on this? I know you don't want to talk about the Theon storyline at all, but I feel like that's a pretty reasonable email to talk about without giving away spoilers. Actually, I take that back. Probably not, right? <laughs> um, I will say that as a book reader... I am totally down with what they're doing. Right. Everyone, as, everyone who's read the, read the books is like, this is totally awesome. What, like, Theon's storyline is totally living up to its potential. Yeah, so, and as a show watcher, I might be like, what the fuck? Who the fuck? Where the fuck? I mean, yeah. that's exactly where you guys are. They're not telling you anything. Um, and that must be frustrating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it is very frustrating. So, so I guess to respond to Thomas, no, I, I don't mind scenes that move around – that move along character, but not necessarily plot. We've had many of those scenes in Game of Thrones where it's just two characters sitting in a room talking about their feelings about each other. Uh, what I'm bothered by is scenes that uh, that are under the guise, you know, that appear to move along the plot, but then don't, and only end up being about character. Like that feels slightly disingenuous to me. That is all. But God, well, I, I, I mean, but it was a it was a disingenuous. Okay, I understand why the re- why the showrunners are doing it actually, yep. um, and it's for your sake and lo- it's for your own good, guys. <laughs> it's okay. For your own good, okay. But also, um, you know, and if you don't believe in the show, believe in me when I tell you it's for your own good. But also, um, that bait and switch that frustrated you—I mean, that was also a bait and switch on Theon. And so I think it's that- to put you in the mindset of Theon. Yeah, man. But also, like, I really did enjoy his confession in in the tunnels there, like his breaking down and talking about Ned being his real father. Like, I thought that was really touching. It was. So, it was. I don't know. Spencer from Seattle, Washington writes in uh, about this article uh, at uh, EW.com entitled Game of Thrones, Amelia Clark and Producers. Uh, talk tonight's stunning dragon unleashing discussing last week's episode in the article Benioff discover, uh, discusses how off guard he was caught upon reading that scene in the book and how masterfully Martin had laid out all the pieces of the deception while still holding the reader unawares like many other viewers I found that scene in last week's episode to be of paramount awesomeness but what I found particularly intriguing about its adaptation was how easy it was to predict the events that would ultimately unfold uh, as evidenced by the Slash Film Comment Board, many viewers had successfully called with startling accuracy and ease the resolu- resolution to the Astapor plotline. While this may be a testament to how well the showrunners have established that the dragons are in fact Danny's children and not expendable bargaining chips, I found it interesting that an event in the book that surprised Slash moved the producers so much that they were driven to adapt the series was so easily predictable on the show. Uh, also, uh, that that one of the reasons that David Benioff and Dan Weiss have publicly stated that, that perhaps the main reason they were driven to adapt the series was due to one or two specific scenes in book three that they found particularly powerful and moving. So like that one scene was like one of the motivations to, to make this into a show. It was building up 
to that episode, and boy, did it pay off. Joanna Robinson, uh, are you familiar with the other scenes that yes. they might be referring to? Yes. Yes. A- and have they happened yet? No. Okay. So there's a lot to look forward to then. There is. I'm going to ask you this very obliquely. Because you have said that you know exactly where season three is going to end. Yes. It, is, is one of those scenes going to be before the end of season three? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm very, very curious. <laughs> <laughs> very curious. Okay. I should clarify. I don't know exactly where the season's going to end. I know exactly uh, what's... I know of a thing that's going to happen before the season ends. Okay. But it's a little bit of a question mark whether or not they include something after that. All right. Uh, That's my in? oblique answer. Bob writes in. So uh, we, we discussed uh, how last week Varys sort of uncovered this uh, sorcerer. Well, I wanna, sorry, can I say really quickly that that Entertainment Weekly article is actually pretty charming in that Weiss and Benioff really are revealed as sort of these book geeks who are like who were reading along and they were like, oh, snap, Danny's dragons. And like I think it was like Benioff called up Weiss and was like, oh, my God, we have to do this. Like <laughs> their excitement is palpable coming off the page of that article. So yeah. um, it's a re- it's a really sweet sort of little window into their fandom. And, so. it, sh- and it shows like in yeah. the show like that was a spectacular. I almost feel like this, the, ep- the season might have peaked too early. Joanna Robinson. <laughs> I'm just just leaving that out there for you. Just to, laying the traps laying for the me trap. to walk into. Laying the trap. Uh, we had a talk. So I rewatched season th- uh, three, episode four again, and like, yeah, it. Like when Varys uncovers the thing with the sorcerer inside, it really, it really looks really troubling. Like you don't really know what it is, but he does look like he's in extreme distress. Um, Bob writes in, I don't think Varys Sorcerer is ever shown to be a red priest like Thoros or Melisandre. His magic involves fire, but Melisandre and Thoros have never summoned voices through flame. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Joanna? I don't really have a lot to say. I think you can... Uh, what I will say, the bigger indication to me is that Thoros's full character is Thoros of Mir. Right. And, and Varys talks about how this went down in Mir. Right. And I'm not saying the people of Mir only follow the Lord of the Light. I'm Lord of Light. I'm just saying that that is a strong indication to me. All right. Anything else we want to discuss this week, Joanna Robinson? I don't think so. I'm really, now I'm really excited for you all to watch the rest of the season and get excited. Good. Good. Are you okay? Are you crying? No, I'm excited. <laughs> it's tears of joy. It's tears of joy. It's like tears of frustration that I can't talk about what I want to talk about. Did you get excited that we saw a little bit of Jamie Lannister's balls this week? I'm wondering if they were stunt balls, but yes, I did. Okay. I also so I've heard that Brienne used a stunt double, and that uh, Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow, used a stunt double because he uh, they used stunt butts. You're saying. Yeah, stunt butts yeah. because he um, – I guess he had an ankle brace on when they show him like leaping into the pool to right. be with um, Egret. I guess Kit, Kit Harrington had an ankle brace, which you can't see under like the pounds of furs and boots that he's wearing. But right. if you were naked, you would see. So Right. Well, then – But that was all Egret, baby. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty obvious. 
unless they did some Benjamin Button style superimposing. <laughs> um, but yeah, who knows? Who knows if Jamie Lannister used stunt balls? That is a good question. If you know, li- I listeners, I think it's one for the ages. Really? What? What is the question? It's, yeah, it's a question for the ages. If you know, listeners, let it write in. If you if you work on the set of Game of Thrones, write in. At a cast of kings at gmail.com. Oh, and if you wouldn't mind, please send me screen caps because I love it when you guys send me screen caps of nudity. Do you have a book of the week this week, Joanna? I do. I want to recommend. But before you get to that, <laughs> I, just, I was just checking to see if you had one. You want to let people know where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yes, you can find me every day on Pajiba.com, uh, particularly this spoiler post that I do about Game of Thrones every Wednesday. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at QuitYourJRob. You can find me at DaveChen.net and Twitter.com slash DaveChenSky. That's DaveChenSKY. And Jonah Robinson, what is your book of the week recommendation? I want to recommend – I want to put out a recommendation for Neil Stevenson's Baroque Cycle um, in that it's similarly sprawling as as George R. R. Martin's um, A Game of Thrones. Neil Stevenson is top-notch sci-fi fantasy writer. And um, the Baroque cycle is just a really great meaty epic that you can sink your teeth into. So Neil Stevenson, Baroque cycle, my recommendation. All right. Well, thank you for that, Joanna Robinson. And thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. Thanks also to SlashFilm.com for making this podcast possible. We'll see you guys next week. Next week.